Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is called Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Special guest today, Mr. Coy Wynn, an artist, entrepreneur, and a technocrat who has created a new way to be creative. Welcome to Seldom Said, Coy. Thank you for having me. Certainly our pleasure. Appreciate your talent and your patience. Can we start with a little bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time in your life? Wow, that's a long story, but I'll be brief. Um, I was born in Vietnam in 1973 uh, during the Vietnamese War, and um, we fled Vietnam by boat in 79 um, to Hong Kong. We stayed in refugee camps there, um, and then we were sponsored over by some Catholic charities uh, to the projects of Kansas City, Missouri, where we uh, immigrated to the United States, and then... Uh, we stayed there for two and a half years and then went to uh, the projects or the barrios in Compton, Gardena area, and then Orange County, where I finished my doctorate in uh, mathematics and then uh, became professor in Chicago, decided that was not my thing, and became an artist. And here I am. That's, that's a brief of it. There is a book there, Coy. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, I go, you know, it's, the funny thing is I go and I interview a lot of celebrities um, for my portrait, and they, they, they say this reverse. They say, why don't you come back and I'll interview you? And um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's always, it's always, wow, that's so cool. Uh, yeah, there's, uh, it's been a very colorful life I've been through. Um, it has been marred with a lot of tragedies, but a lot of uh, uplifting accounts. And um, I would be lying to say if all my family made it through, uh, there were a lot of consequences and trauma in which um, half of my family are suffering from. Um, but, you know, we made it. We made it to America. And a lot of the genesis of my, my project or my work uh, deals from the fact of where I came from and, and my stations in life that, uh, that has brought me to this point. And um, it is incumbent upon me to pay reverence to those who have laid the foundation for my rights and uh, for my way of life as it is in America. You consider yourself then a witness? Yes, definitely. Um, you know, poverty, um, discrimination, um, also uh, love and generosity, uh, going through the whole spectrum that uh, is, is, is humanity, right? The plight of the refugee. Um, I've seen some major evils, um, major oppression, and also celebratory of freedom. I also witnessed a lot of kindness, a lot of support, and a lot of human mystic qualities uh, of people who understand that helping other people is, uh, is a fundamental, fundamental nature of how we all get along and how society progresses. Yeah, so I have, I have witnessed, um, I can go into more detail if you want, but some, some amazing things during this process. Certainly. Uh, your life is a reflection of a time. And as an artist, you project that reflection onto the psyches of other people. So please, if you continue in a vein or want to discuss a story, the program is yours for the next 55 minutes. Perfect. You know, um, I think America has always been a beacon. And uh, when we uh, fled Vietnam by boat, our family had to decide very fundamentally, which is split in threes, because I think the mortality rate of refugees are... Roughly 25% of us don't make it, and so the family decided to split in three, which was a very grueling decision. How do we split up the family just in case all of us might vanish in one boat? So uh, my father decided that my mother and all the younger children and the girls would go the easiest route, theoretically, which is by boat. And then the two, the three older brothers will fled by foot through the mountains into China, and my father will go last just in case uh, something happens. But of course, there's no communication, so there's really no way that he would know. Uh, so yeah, but I was on the boat. I was the youngest of nine children. And my mother, with three teenage girls and uh, uh, two young boys, were on the boat fending for us. Um, 
We uh, unfortunately the boat had a little hole, and what supposed to take one week took almost a month, and so we ran out of food. And I remember vividly, even though I was really young, I was five years old, but I remember vividly uh, trying to catch uh, jellyfish and trying to eat it, and people would get poisoned because it's, it's it's not edible. But they still did it, you know, and it was just a horrendous time. Uh, finally, we uh, were caught by miraculously by the the Hong Kong patrol which is at that time under British control. So we were placed into the refugee camps in Hong Kong, and uh, we stayed there for 11 months. And, um, you know, that taught me a lot about human nature. Um, you know, we didn't have a male protector. I mean, just my mother, and we, we would get really cringed on our space, get it taken, my mom has always to watch out for, you know, uh, sexual predators, etc. And uh, as a kid, we were all working, even as, as five years old. And uh, we were, I was at least, making watches, uh, putting metal pins into the, into the wristbands of watches because your hands are small enough that you can do it very efficiently. Uh, requires a very, you know, tactile hand. And I remember, uh, and again, this is, we had to fight for it. So it's not like child labor in the sense they're forcing us to do it. You literally have to beg for these jobs. And uh, you, know, you go to the fence, and I guess at that time, it, it, the Chinese mostly were hiring kids, and we would just beg, just like, you know, literally beg for, to, for us to have the job. And when, uh, not my parents, but when some of the kids could not get the job, they would get hit upon. And so, you know, there is not a condition for kids to grow up in and the amount of pressure that they have to get those kind of jobs. I, I think thinking back, you know, I realized that this world under war and under refuge is, is, is just a horrendous place to be, especially for kids. But somehow we made it. And somehow as kids, you know, you just try to have fun and you just try to live as best you can. And I remember they would issue... Um, uh, plastic trash cans, and we would use it as swimming pools, and <laughs> and uh, you know you try to make the best of it. And you know, again, this is the whole nine yard where you have to you know wait in line for pails of water. Uh, there are just outhouses, and and there's horrendous stories about that. But you know, there's no, it's not a a a nice place to to say the least. But we were there for eleven uh, months, and miraculously, all my brother and sister made it, and my my. You know, my, my mom was also in pins and needles waiting for my brothers and my father because she has no idea. There was no communication. There was no letters, no, obviously, phones. Um, but we, yeah, we finally reunited and um, waited and waited for, uh, to go to America, which was, you know, at that time and still is probably the most sought-after place to be because of all its promises. And I remember the British missionaries who would come to teach us English, uh, they would tell the stories of America. And it's indelible in my mind what they say. And um, you know, I get emotional talking about it, but it's like you're pitching a kid a huge dream, you know. America is a melting pot. America, everybody's equal. Uh, you know, the sky's the limit. Um, everything. And... and um, so when we did go to the projects in Kansas City, Missouri, sponsored by the Don Bosco Church there, um, it was all black people. <laughs> you know, it was um, it was not what I imagined it to be. Um, but that's just so I, I knew <clears throat> even at a young age that the lens that was given to me by the British missionaries were of a different class. That their view of America was different from what I have encountered, and that my station <clears throat> entering the United States is of a different class, you know, and even as a young kid, five, six, I understood that, all the poverty and the violence and the drugs in the projects, and I understand as a young kid, because <clears throat> I, I rarely left the projects, um, that it was not homogenous, um, it was not a melting pot, at least from what I can see. And so it was a little bit disappointment, but irregardless, I was we were, we made it, 
we made it to the projects, which is a huge step up. At least we have bedrooms, you know, <laughs> at least we have privacy. You know, we didn't have beds, we have bedrooms, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, you don't ever think of in life, oh, we made it to the projects as, as, as a glorious thing. But um, it was glorious. We made it, at least we have a freedom. If I may, Coy, yeah, it's a marvelous train of thought. It's, it's, it's virtually lyrical in describing how one comes from the darkness into the light, no matter how pervasively gray that light can be. A while back toward the end of his life, I interviewed Theodore Bikel, and he responded to the question of what a refugee was by saying, I'm an American, I know, and I'm grateful for the country, but a refugee is always a refugee, and it pervades everything I do in my art. Do you subscribe to that feeling? It is, because it is part of who you are, you know. Uh, a refugee is the lowest station in this country. After you become a refugee, you become a, a permanent resident, and then you become the highest station, which is a citizen, which can actually have a voice and vote. So I couldn't even travel. So that is a huge part of who I am. I, I knew I fled. I, I didn't belong to any country. You know, I, I was not, quote-unquote, accepted by any country. And so for the longest time, I felt alienated, you know, but, um, and especially as a kid, uh, it's, it's, it's amplified because um, you were fed some kind of model, kind of dream that was not real, you know, and then you had to fight to, to achieve that. So, yeah, it's always ingrained into me that I am a refugee, you know, and, and it's in my art, of all my artwork. And it's not a conscious choice that I chose my artwork. It's just something that draws me, and it always has been the disenfranchised and the marginalized in society. And, and I guess it's, it's something in me. It's not like, I, I go, oh, I'm going to do this. It's just, oh, let's try that. It's just, it's just something that drives me to represent that. Is there a liability in thinking too much about your creative process rather than simply letting it flow? These feelings you've described are passionate and strong. Yes, I mean, it is a mixture of both. I mean, um, I think the initial drive should be something that is innate, something that is fundamental to the being of who you are. Um, but, you know, the execution should be somewhat thought out and, and, and uh, well articulated. So the initial, yes, the drive towards that artwork should be, I think, innate. There should be not too much thinking, but the execution definitely should have a lot of thinking. So it's a mixture of both, I think. The mathematicians I've known are closet poets, is there any rationale in your own past that made math a kind of epiphanal moment, segueing then from math to art? It's interesting in your approach. It is. I think fundamentally it's because coming here, English is my second language. And even though I was a kid and you know, kids are, are sponges basically for information and learning languages much more than adults, but it's still a second language. I feel inferior or deficient. Uh, in English classes or in in uh, composition classes, so I, I I hone in on what is a more of a universal language, which is mathematics. And you know, mathematics here and mathematics in Vietnam is the same. It doesn't matter. So um, I excelled in that because um, I felt I had more of a level ground, and I, I was really um, a good kid. I mean, I. I, I did mathematics very fast, and I remember my fifth grade teacher, Miss Kopecky, she would always uh, check my watch after the test to make sure I, have, I don't have an electronic calculator on my watch because I can do it faster than she can. So <laughs> I always excelled that way. And uh, yeah, and, and mathematics uh, still to me is my first love. It's, it's a beautiful language. It is, uh, it, it is the one thing that makes me kind of believe in God. You know, it is so perfect in its design and there is no um, there, there is no fault to it we have not found a contradiction yet and it is it is a succinct and beautiful language so it is somewhat poetic it really is you mentioned the spiritual nature 
of your first love, mathematics. When you talk about something like that, do you have in the essence of your artwork and your PhD work a desire to show a potential creator, a systematology that in some way presupposes that there is a plan? You know, I, unfortunately, I am, a, I, I am just of this world. I, I do not pretend to know the logic that is beyond me. We, we all live in a logical system that is understandable by us. So I, I cannot, it would be naive of me to think that I'm expressing some higher form of intelligence, you know, because you're in the system, you're inside the box. It's very hard for you to look out. But, um, so I can't honestly say that, you know, I try to present a way that shows the magnificence of our creator, uh, just besides, you know, um, celebrating the life that he has given me and to do, to present the humanity that, that, that he has given me. So that, um, that's the extent of it, but not, not to shed more light on, onto, onto his greatness because, um, I am just a mortal, so I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, in the company of a mortal. I'm one myself, so we have that to share. I would wonder if you were to speak of the areas you've excelled in, both mathematics and art, whether you find an elemental technical similarity in that in the PhD work, there are defensive boards and so forth, writing a thesis, having a thesis topic. And in art, you're simply placing something in the confines of a viewable space and making it available to others. What are the similarities and differences between both creative processes? Both are very creative. Um, I think mathematics is creative. I know people will think it's counterintuitive because all these laws and rules, how can it be creative? But the more laws and rules that you have, the more creative you have to be, you know, to, to, to prove a point, you know. So you have to go about it in a very creative way. And so it's the same thing with art. It's, it's very creative. But the difference is um, mathematics does not speak to me as a human being. It does not shed light onto why I am the way I am as a human being, my human side, my, um, my, my understanding and my relationship with other people around me. It speaks beautifully about the universe and, and physics and, and the laws of nature, but it does not speak to me as a human being. So that's the difference between it. And I do use a tremendous amount of math in my current work, a tremendous amount. I don't think it is possible to do it without mathematics and computation, to be honest with you. So I do integrate the two, but it's not a forceful integration. Is that I use mathematics because it's needed, not because okay. Let me think of a way to use math and art together and kind of do like a a, a prearranged marriage. It is really a fluid flow. That okay, I definitely need to use my analytical and math skill to make this work because this project is truly very novel and it really hasn't been done. So uh, because it is, it requires a it requires literally all of me. It requires me as a mathematician, me as a programmer, as a human being, and as an artist. So uh, it, it took all of me to to make this project. And uh, it is a beautiful marriage. And um, going off track a little bit, I was at a conference um, for National Association of Multicultural Education. I was just a guest of a friend. Uh, and uh, she told me, why are you showing me your work? I go, okay, fine, let me show them my work. And then when I was there, I was showing to them, um, the, the president of the association came over and said, we've been looking forever for an application of art, science, computational, and history. And this is it. So they invited me on the spot to be the keynote speaker this year. So they understood uh, that this project is a rich culmination of many disciplines. And, and, and I'm so honored that they would <laughs> invite me on the spot to become a keynote speaker. So, yeah, this is an integration of many, many multitudes of disciplines. It's a marvelous compliment for one expert to pay to a gifted expert on the other end of the table. 
I can assure you that uh, if there is the possibility of having access to your comments at the meeting, many of the listening audience would uh, be quite intrigued to listen and hear or read if need be. I'm thinking to myself, uh, medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas once said when he was pressed into the corner, now I take a leap of faith. I simply do it. I can't explain why. I just let it flow. Have you ever had that feeling in your artwork? Let it be. It's coming. I'll simply allow it. You have to. I mean, I think you have to because as an artist, um, you know, you that that's your fundamental drive, that you have to follow your vision because there's a thousand things going against it. Art is very undervalued in the society. You know, it is, you know, relegated, you know, as, as you can imagine, you know, our defense budget is 2,000 times more than the National Endowment for Arts and, and, uh, and uh, Humanities. So we're very undervalued, so there's a constant barrage of things that go against me um, in, in speaking my voice, and you have just to do it. You have to follow your will and, and, and follow the model, I shall live it my way or I shall not live it at all. So I have options. I mean, I can go to corporate. I, can, I was a professor. I can go back to teaching. I can, you know, work for the big man. But uh, I, I choose to follow my path, which is not the easiest path, and follow my voice because I, I, I do get a lot of influences from either fame or money to alter my vision so that it's, that's easily marketable and easily um, accessible to fame. But I don't do it. I choose my subjects, which is not the most lucrative things to choose. Social, social justice art is probably the poor man's art. It is really, you know, it's not, you know, something that, that is, is valued in the in the capitalistic model. It, it just isn't. But uh, but that is my passion. I have to follow what I feel I must do as a human being. So yeah, it's a constant struggle. Every day, it's a struggle for me. That's uh, a blessing as a motivation. I must say, I've spoken to many who look at the check and the zeros after the one rather than look into their own heart and their own being and judge what they've put on the wall. Can you describe the development of this very unique art project, the steps you've taken? Yes, it's, it's very involved and it's very intricate. Um, basically, it's a fingerprint portrait, which, you know, obviously has been done with Chuck Close, um, but it's special because it's made by thousands of people. And that has never been done. Uh, fingerprint portraits or, or paintings are actually very hard to execute, even by one person. But to be executed by thousands of people, it's really hard. So I had this idea maybe four or five years ago, but I didn't jump on it because I knew it would take everything that I have. Uh, it will put everything on the line. And two years ago... I suffered uh, from a massive, massive depression, anxiety, you know, all the, all the things that go together with that. And I had nothing else to lose. You know, I literally had nothing else to lose. I go, I'm going to do this. My therapist said, just do it. So I did it. And um, the first thing I had to tackle was paint. I mean, something so simple. I knew that was a huge issue, that, that, that was a problem. So when you, uh, as a painter, when you paint, um, what I have to do is I have to unroll and roll my painting thousands and thousands of times to bring it to people's places so they can affix their fingerprint onto the painting. Now, to do that, the paint, if you do that more than 20 times, it's going to crack. So I, I, I painted my parents like this, and I wrote a couple of times, I, I realized it's going to crack. But if you wrote a thousand, it's not going to work. So I had to literally develop my own paint so that it dries fast, is permanent and does not crack. And I, must, I tried that for months and months, tried to figure out a way to do it. And I finally did it. That Because, um, you know, when you go to people's houses, that's exactly where I go. I actually enter the home. 
I can't wait there for hours for oils and acrylics and the like to dry so I can roll it back up and take it out. I literally have to be finished probably in 20, 30 minutes max. And so that was the first issue with major. I almost gave up on that because I, I couldn't figure it out. But I finally did. And so uh, the second part is, is, is each person's fingerprint on the painting is registered. That means their exact location within millimeters is known. So how do you do that? How do you track thousands of people and where they are on the painting? I mean, so I thought about, okay, using a pointer system that I can set up and, and record it, or taking a little, little uh, photograph, a little uh, digital photograph of where they put the, fi- the thumb or the finger and, and map it out later at home. And that did not work because even in a small photograph, there's hundreds or thousands even of fingerprints, and I get lost where it is. And I can't make a mistake. I can't say, well, that's Dr. King's fingerprint, uh, Bernice King's fingerprint, who is on the painting. And when it isn't, does that make sense? So I have to make it very precise. I can't, like, just, okay, well, it's possibly right there. I have to know exactly where it is. So that was a huge issue, and I, I finally thought up a way to do it and requires me to program a laser cutter to cut a oval templates all around so I can mark exactly where it is. And, and uh, yeah, so I had to program a laser cutter for that and invest um, quite a bit of money on that. And then uh, the third thing I had to do was how do I connect these interviews? So each person who placed their fingerprint, symbolically giving a piece of themselves onto the painting to palm the portrait of, let's say, Obama, I interviewed them about this historic moment. And so how do you connect those interviews to that fingerprint? And so I had to program a virtual reality from scratch, which is a gaming engine, um, to access all these interviews and the locations and videos, etc. And And that takes a tremendous amount of math, too. And I'm not a game person. I haven't watched TV since the X-Files. And, you know, I, I just don't, I'm, I'm not that type of person. I really don't have time. And so for me to learn this from scratch, um, and but I believe that it, it's important to do this new media to access for the kids to understand. And although it's not a game and you know, I'm not killing zombies or becoming a hero, the true heroes, in my opinion, for my life are on this painting, the people who fought for the black civil rights movement and the gay civil rights movement. They're on this painting and, and their stories and their triumphs and their persistence in swinging the pendulum of justice um, is monumental. And I, I believe this, this portraits, these two portraits will be historic. I would assume then that's the rationale for having an initial conceptualization of Harvey Milk. Is there also uh, somewhere I would imagine so a descriptive fingerprint of Martin Luther King. You know, uh, no, there isn't. I'm, I'm doing a Barack Obama right now. So when I did uh, meet uh, Dr. Bernice King, and and when she affixed her fingerprint, she alluded to the fact that she would want one of Dr. Martin Luther King. But I am I mean, my place so full. I'm doing this too. It literally takes all of my time. You can imagine setting up uh, appointments with these type of people are not easy. And I have to literally drive to Atlanta. I'm from Orange County. I have to drive to Atlanta. I, I don't trust my painting on the planes. <laughs> so I, I'm sorry to American Airlines. I just don't trust it. So I li- and I have so much other stuff I have to bring with me that it's easier for me just to drive there. And so it takes, it literally takes all of my time. I mean, programming this VR if I had to hire someone to do it, I cannot imagine who would accept it and for how much. It just, it's really, if you look at some of the VRs set by NASA on exoplanets, and I love NASA, so please forgive me, NASA, it was not that great. And there's a plethora of, of, of credits, like, you know, a group of people working on it, and I'm just by myself. So it's really a full-time job doing, you know, rather be editing videos, uh, maintaining the painting, uh, setting up appointments, going to those appointments, you know, uh, program the VR. It's really intensive amount of work. So those are, you know, I can't, I can't do anymore right now until I'm finished with, uh, with the ones I have. 
there seems to be such a fluidity in your descriptions of individuals and how you present them. It's very difficult to use the word masterpiece. It's not a stagnant portrait that you've created. But is there a piece that you can go back to and say to yourself in a private moment, I've done this and I'm well satisfied? Um, the, none of them are finished yet, but the one that I know, my first one was Obama. And uh, I feel that once that's done, it'll be historic, because I'm getting a lot of uh, civil rights leaders on it and people of historical significance to why we have, or how it's possible to have our first black president. So that is my original, my first piece, and the one that that is my pride and joy. Um, but it's not done. I give myself a few years to finish this. And um, that, that's just the way I am. All my projects are, everything I do, is, is never like, you know, a short-term thing. It's always a long-term projection. Many of the subjects you've chosen, in fact, virtually all, are heroic figures. The definition of heroism seems to vary with many creative people and not... In point of fact, have you ever been tempted to simply create a representation of the ordinary? Um, not regarding this project, because this project is about icons, and I'm having thousands of people's fingerprints on it. So an icon, to me, is someone who affects millions of people. Um, like my father, I did paint my father and mother. Those were the first two paintings I did. I've done, and and you know, and of course, they're monumental to me. And I get all my brothers and sisters on it, all my nieces and nephews on it. But still, that's only you know maybe hundreds of people. So um, this project, the way it is, it is a communal effort. It is a tapestry of all of our fingerprints together forming this massive chorus of praises for this icon. And, and it requires someone who draws and influences millions of people. So um, this project is not meant for some, uh, someone who is um, not an icon. Not to say they're not important, it's just that the subject matter requires thousands of fingerprints and stories about this person. So a regular person uh, like me and you uh, or my parents would not solicit thousands of people uh, having time to do this. So it's just the nature of the media. For the purpose of illustration, uh, let us choose a topic, an individual, a personality. What is your creative process? How do you go from the initial conceptualization to something you place against a wall and invite witnesses to view? Yeah, I mean, it's a long creative process. Um, I, I, I touched up briefly on, on, you know, developing the paints, going to people, having, collecting the stories, etc. You know, I choose, I think the hardest part for me is choosing who to put onto the painting and, and having them do it. Um, that, that is the hardest part for me. And I started out, uh, Obama at least, getting the fingerprints of Juvenile Hall, students of people exiting juvenile hall and because I wanted to show them that they have as much potential as anyone on this painting. And just because they were in juvenile hall doesn't mean their life is predetermined or predetermined. So that is where I started. And, and then I started with uh, DACA students uh, attending a mental health um, clinic where a lot of these people are suffering from anxiety and depression, not knowing how stable their life are, and I, I wanted to, to use this as art therapy. And I remember asking um, one student, why do you feel you're American? And his response was, because I would die for this country. So it's, it's choosing the right voices, choosing the right people that I, I want to include, and that is a creative process. I can create the painting, I can create a VR, I can orchestrate and uh, direct, but without the stories, I don't have a plot. So my, my drive is 
getting the, the, the stories from the average person and the disenfranchised to the upper echelons of society. And that is where I think I have to be creative in and how to get those people to be involved because everyone is busy. And, and, um, and, and that is, has been the largest challenge uh, to me. I remember quite some time ago, uh, during the months of warmer weather than we have now, a father in a playground talking to his daughter and saying to her, can't you see, do you see, look closely, can you see? He was pointing out a star. How would you recommend the non-practitioner to view your artwork when the audience comes in? Obviously, you're not going to say, can't you see, do you see? But what would you want them to see, and how would you want them to approach it? Well, I think all art is about intimacy. It's, it's how much we invest into it. Um, how, how close do we want to understand this? And like all art, you will never understand the totality of it. Um, I'm dealing with massive, massive issues. So in an exhibition uh, setting, what I want people to, to understand is that the portrait of Obama, who he is, we make who he is. Our visions and our struggles and our understanding drive his motivation. And in turn, the way he is and the way he has presented himself as president to most of, to many of us, provides us with pride and understanding of achieving as a country. Because when he was first elected, um, we don't know who he was. I mean, he's new, but we felt as a country, we finally lived up to a promise that you know all people are created equal. So I want people to approach it in the sense that this is a fabric of who we are. There are so many lives in here that we're all connected, that we all are unified, and we all stand for something higher. And then as you get closer and closer to the portrait, you will see individual fingerprints. You will see that it is a composite of all of our lives together. And then as you put on the VR, the, the headset to look, it will unlock further into the fingerprint stories and interviews of people, their lives relative to the election of the first black president. And there's some of them, the struggles of, you know, sitting behind the bus, being the house being bombed, etc. you know, and how that manifests into an epiphany to actually seeing and witnesses in their lifetime the progress of America to elect the first black president. So it is, it depends how far you're from. From a distance, it's just a portrait of Obama. As closer, you realize there are actual individual fingerprints. And even metaphorically closer, you, as you don onto the headset, you will open and unlock the lives inside those fingerprints. So it's, it's basically in stages. That's how you would consume this artwork. It's a marvelous conceptualization. Raphael, for instance, constantly painted Madonna and Child, different shadings, different expressions, different colors. Do you plan to periodically repeat the portrait of an icon? I, I, I don't, um, because um, it is a massive... I mean, yeah, it'd be so nice to change a different color if I can do it, but this is such a massive endeavor that, mind you, some of these people who have been on the portrait in the last two years, some of them have even passed. So this portrait, as is, is very unique, and it's, it'll be the largest collection of fingerprints of historic figures and everyday Americans ever to exist in one piece of work. And to repeat it would be extremely hard. Um, it, it takes a lot of my resources. And there are other icons that I'm thinking about of doing. Um, and so all of this will be just one painting of the icon. I will not do a second in, in variation, because any variation would be, as you can imagine, extremely time-consuming and hard, and quite frankly, irreproducible. 
Picasso often criticized certain artists in saying they'd lost their childishness. They'd forgotten their childhood. Do you feel your process would lend itself to younger ages as a teaching tool in a school? Yes, it's... Uh, I'm so glad you asked that question. And that's the reason why they invited me to become keynote speaker, because when I was presenting my work uh, ad hoc at the conference, uh, there were the conference is mostly professors, like thousands of professors. But they were inviting some inner city kids, grade uh, grade you know uh, five to eight, to perform a dance. Uh, African American kids to perform a dance there, and there was these two young girls, uh, black girls, and they were trying on the VR and they were trying on the system, and they would not get off. <laughs> and there was a line of professors <laughs> behind them, and I to go sweetie. The people waiting, and of course, the professor was very gracious. He was going to let them take their time, so they took their time. And so that's why the, the president came over and go, you have something that engages the kids. So, and, and this is their language. They understand this. And they can be immersed in it literally for hours. You know, I don't recommend it because, you know, your eyes get straight out. But, you know, they through, thoroughly enjoy the interactive space that I have and understanding about uplifting the black image, you know, a lot of the students I interview in this project, it's, it's, it's both disheartening and, and joy because a lot of them have a very, very negative imagery of black society, especially men. And, and they're getting this from media or the environment they're in. And so it's very important for me to show to them all the plethora of amazing black figures in this project, you know, amazing father figures, you know, the first, some of the first doctors, black doctors who have ever graduated from, you know, the University of Alabama, et cetera, or, you know, some amazing Harvard-educated professors, female professors, you know, and and just just absolutely positive role models that that the kids can can look at and, and be and have, Pride and look at our black president. I mean, come on, that should bring a tremendous amount of pride. And some of the kids, you know, from ages, you know, two to ten, all they understand during Obama's administration was that the president's supposed to be a black man. That is their norm, you know. So it's huge. It's huge. It's a huge impact on the psyche of of of, of children of color. And that is where I want it to be presented to as a teaching tool for the schools. Do we err in our schools when we attempt to discipline creativity? I'm often recommended uh, to English classes and textbooks, and I read them and find myself put off by the fact that grammar dictates where the thought and the passion should go. Does the American educational system, in your opinion, overdo it rather than saying to that African-American child or any child, go let it be. Let it flow. Yeah, I think especially at a young age, you have to let it flow. Um, at, at a young age, if you introduce too much rigor, you basically set what's called the initial condition. You're forcing them down a certain path, right? Let them refine their art. Let them refine their uh, articulation later when they have more tools to understand how to refine, refine them. But especially at a younger age, let them flow, let them find their voice. Okay, find, let them find their voice before you teach them, you know, all the structures. And, and I, yeah, I agree with you that a lot of times, um, please forgive me, uh, teachers, a lot of times don't let education uh, get in the way of your learning, <laughs> you know. So a lot of times you have to be, flu- be fluid. You have to you have to let your creative juices flow. And then, but there are also times that you need to have structure so you can articulate your point of views. It's just not, oh, I feel that way, and that's how I feel. No, I mean, why? Give, give some context. But that can come later. That, 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 that can come later when the machinery of academia, you know, is needed. But at the beginning, I, I, I think it's, 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 it might be um, kind of, counterproductive, especially for kids. You seem to be presenting a case for telling the story before analyzing and presenting the moral. Is that, in a sense, what you're asking 
people to do when they admire your work? Simply look and then decide later? Yes, definitely. I mean, art, you know, I don't pretend and I, I am not seeking uh, the approval of the museums or the, you know, the institution that, you know, uh, will deem if my art is worthy. They are not my intent. It is just about the people. And so in this case, yes, enjoy the art, look at it, formulate your ideas. You know, um, there are a lot of discourse, obviously, in the artwork. I mean, there, there can be a lot of conversation that can be started from it. And there are a lot of uh, artistic history, art history and articulation in it. But it, this is meant to be consumed at every level, you know, of every level of income, at every level of social economic class, and at every level of education. People can understand struggle and triumph. You don't you not need a thesis or a dissertation to understand it. And, yeah, so that is my intent for my artwork. It is not intended. I mean, it would be nice if it's a museum, but if it doesn't, I don't care. I would like to go to this library or go to institutions of, of equality, stuff like that. And uh, the Hoity Toity Museum is not my, my, my primary focus. Well said. It's been argued that everyone has a book in them. They simply have to let it out. Do you feel everyone has an art piece in them? And as Michelangelo describing uh, the Piata, I decided to let him out of the stone. Do you believe we all have it within? You've just shown us a way to open up. Well, that's an interesting question, and it's a very hard question because it, it fundamentally asks the question, what is art, right? Before you can even answer that question. And I have a very loose interpretation of art, and that is art is really a process to gain intimacy with your subject. You know, so as long as you are able to gain intimacy with your subject, whether it be your parents, whether it be a flower, or whether it be, you know, some social, societal issues, the more you, the process of getting to know that intimately, that you're consumed by that, that process is art. And the manifestation, whether it be a photograph, whether it be a sculpture, whether it be writing, whether it be a painting, is just one snapshot of that process. The process is wholly and, and consumed by you. You understand the process more than anybody else, and that process makes who you are and your gaining of the intimacy. That snapshot is to share to the world, whether it be painting or photograph, but it can never replace the process that you take. So I implore everybody to take that process, to understand a subject, no matter what it is, because the more you realize in any subject in this world, the more in-depth you go into it, the more you will love it. There's reason why people like philosophy, some people like science, but they're so varied. But this is because they have gained a, a tremendous amount of intimacy with that subject. And, and I, I, it'd be nice if they can express that intimacy. And that expression of intimacy is what I call art. So... That I think everybody can, because you know we are, we are, we all go through that process. There's something in this world that we really love and we really want to be an expert at. When you observe the humanity of a subject, does it heighten your appreciation of who and what they are and what they've done, or are they diminished in some degree in that they've proven themselves to be weaker and human? Um, this project, the first thing it teaches me is a tremendous amount of effort that I took from every single field possible. Let's say for Harvey Milk, I mean, for the gay rights movement, it took media, it took legislation, it took protests, it took, you know, hate crimes, it took everything to push the pendulum. And so this project, when people reveal their humanity, it makes me feel closer to them. I don't judge them. I don't, you know, realize. I understand everybody's human and they have issues. And a lot, and a lot of these people, you know, because you get the inside scoop. I get the like, inside scoop on a lot of people. But that's not my motive. My motive is very positive about this project. We all have faults, but I focus on to the, how this person, 
contribute to this movement, you know. And so that's why I focus on. So it actually heightens uh, my appreciation for them. Uh, let me give you one example. I mean, um, Scott Wabi, he's a producer, and he was trying to uh, convince Hollywood to uh, do films about uh, gays, you know, uh, the first rather be convincing, uh, trying to convince David Geffen to fund uh, Philadelphia, which uh, the movie with Tom Hanks, stuff like that. Those are sometimes huge risks for these people because millions and millions of dollars. And he's like, it's like pulling teeth. You know, it's like literally pulling teeth. And, and, and he has to do it. And, and he gets rejected and all this stuff. And so, you know, I appreciate the struggle that they do. I appreciate all the efforts that was went into it. And it is gigantic effort. It takes a lot to swing the pendulum. It takes a lot. So yeah, I appreciate the humanity more. You give me the impression that uh, there's a bit of chaos theory within you in that perfection and total acceptance in a model society would be terribly boring. Um... That's also a very interesting question. So you're saying to me that 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 you think that a a totally accepting uh, an equal society would be uh, too homogenous and boring. A utopia would be a room without doors. No one would desire leaving it, and that can strike one as non-inventive, non-adventurous, and boring. Yeah, I mean. Well, we're definitely very, very, very far away from it. Um, I would like the world to have less struggle, and I think we do have the resources for it. But sure, anything that reaches equilibrium is, by definition, unchanging. And so that would be uh, quite boring. Um, like like you say, heaven might be boring, right? <laughs> you, might, you might not want to play the harp all day, right? You, um, you want to be, have a little, little bit of sin in there to, despite your life. I, I can't disagree with you, but I think we're so far away from that theoretical point. I and mean, we were such a young society, a young civilization, or species at least. You know, it's only been like 15,000 years. We, we definitely have not reached equilibrium if you look around the world. We definitely have not reached anywhere close to a state where you know, everybody is is afforded uh, liberty and, and, and shelter and peace of mind, the basic necessities of life. But yeah, once we reach that point, yeah, it might be a point where we get too bored and, and stagnant into it. But um, I don't think we're there yet. How might individuals in the listening audience become involved? How might they view your work? What are your plans for the future? And how might listeners take advantage of those plans? Definitely. So this is um, a tour. I go around the United States. So I will post onto my website, which I will give in a minute, like where I will be. So this is a physical process. I have also developed a way to get your fingerprints remotely um, and getting your stories remotely. But that is really safe for places where I cannot go, where it would be dangerous for me, like Africa, getting the stories of, you know, of gay rights, which I, I was told by my activist friends that don't even try. So, um, but this is more of a physical process. When at a city that I go to, I'll tell people where I'm at, and they'll come and they'll fix the fingerprint. It is an affirmation process. It's, I belong to this vision. And so, yeah, that's how, how one can participate. I do have a GoFundMe. This is completely uh, self-funded. Um, it's, it's just a passion that I have. Uh, I, there's no corporate sponsorship. There's no one um, really helping me. And so that's another way uh, people can help. Um, I tend to do everything I can by myself until I cannot possibly do it. And I'm close to that point where I do need help. And, um, yeah, so you can go to my webpage and then uh, see what cities I'll be in. And if you want to participate, you can email me and say, hey, I'm living in the city. Are you going to be around? And then I will tell them uh, yes or no. And it's always free to participate, fundamental, absolutely free. Because I get homeless people. I get every type of people on here. And, and, and it is not driven by money. It, uh, it, it is not for profit. So that's how we participate. I applaud that. 
How might individuals in the listening audience uh, find your website and your contact information? Sure. Uh, it's www.iconicpaths, that's I-C-O-N-I-C-P-A-T-H-S dot com. And then they should have my contacts and my email on there and, 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 um, and my GoFundMe on there. And, um, yeah, I, uh, it's, it takes all my time. And if I can get help and if people feel that it is it has merit, obviously that's, that's the first criterion. If you feel it has merit, then please help me out. Are you open to the selection of any vessel or agency to show your work? Libraries, schools, museums, hopefully? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, truth be told, many places want my work already. Um, I'm just deciding where I want to house it. Um, I mean, obviously for Obama, I really want to be his library because I think, uh, modesty aside, I think it will be one of the most uh, appealing exhibits in his library. There will be nothing like this. I mean, I think it will attract uh, a lot of people, and it is just not one-dimensional. It is really a transformative experience. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I hope it will travel around, but it's, it's final residence. I hope to be in this library. Are there plans for the future that still haven't been consummated, things you still think about, dream about, and wish to do? Oh, my God, of course. <laughs> what is life without dreams? Indeed. <laughs> right? so, yeah, <y'all, laughs> the question is really, when do I not dream? Uh, yeah, <laughs> there, 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 are, there are two major projects after this that I want to do, and, and one is dealing with cancer, because uh, my brother's going through cancer, and as an artist, that's the best way I know how to pay tribute to that. And it's also community. So all my work is community-based. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a massive sculpture. I want, to, I want to do a massive sculpture of the ribbon and the stories behind it. And my final one, which is uh, a sculpture. of um, It's complicated, but, yeah, it's an it's a electromagnetic, electromagnetic suspend sculpture. So it's a sculpture made of cell phones. And it's all suspended in midair, and I've done that in my undergrad. I know how to suspend electromagnetically. So the project we call Wireless. And uh, it's, it's basically all these cell phones forming you know, a shape, and then it's, the whole sculpture is magnetically suspended in air, and, um, and the, all the phones are programmable. So, you know, they can be very cool. It would seem that you're describing an artwork that propagates itself. Yeah, I mean, if you can imagine that sculpture, and just imagine a very simple thing is that it just, each cell phone just do a selfie shot, basically. It just reverses, so it looks like an eye, right? All around this large surface, you see this eye, and then the whole thing is rotating because it's a spin in air. It'd be gorgeous. <laughs> I can do it. With you, my math background. Indeed. You seem to have the capacity to take a dream to fruition and put it on canvas or wall or paper through technology or the combination of paints and colors. It's a marvelous gift to have, Koi. It truly is. Yeah, and I teach my students that uh, there are projects or there are problems that you do that would take you seconds to finish. There are ones that will take you hours. There are ones that will take you weeks. There are problems I know that will never finish my lifetime, but I still am not deterred from doing it. So there's, you know, these things I know take a long time, but I have resolved and I complete everything I set out to do, whether it be my education, my art, my bodybuilding, or whatever it is. I, I, I know that it takes some time and I'm willing to put the effort to it. I would imagine there are times, and we're within 30 seconds of the end of what has been a marvelous interview, but there must be times where you look out the window or in a mirror and think of how many steps you've taken from Haiphong Harbor. 
definitely. This is the dream of America that I came over here in poverty and through all despair, I got my PhD. And, and it is possible in America, educating in the projects, you can and you can achieve if you give yourself time and determination. We'll have to end with that comment. Hopefully we can have you pass by again. It's our pleasure. Our guest has been Coy Wynn, artist, mathematician, creative, passionate personality. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Robert.